Let's hear about the last few conditions of learning and then transition into how it applies to literacy learning. Responsibility. When learning to talk, learner talkers are permitted to make some decisions, in other words, take responsibility, about what they'll engage with and what they'll ignore. Nature does not provide language demonstrations that are specially arranged in terms of simple to complex. No one decides beforehand which particular language convention or set of conventions children will attend to and subsequently internalize. Learners are left some choice about what they'll engage with next. Learners are able to exercise this choice because of the consistency of the language demonstrations occurring in the everyday ebb and flow of human discourse. Such demonstrations, A, are always in context that supports the meanings being transacted. B, always serve a relevant purpose. C, are usually holes of language. And D, are rarely, if ever, arranged according to some predetermined sequence. The significant others in young learners' environments communicate very strong expectations that the learning task will ultimately be completed successfully while simultaneously providing deep immersion with meaningful demonstrations. But the learners themselves decide the nature of the engagement that will occur. Approximations. When learning to talk, learner talkers are not expected to wait until they have the language fully under control before they're allowed to use it. Rather, they are expected to have a go. In other words, attempt to emulate what is being demonstrated. Their childish attempts are enthusiastically, warmly, and joyously received. Baby talk is treated as a legitimate, relevant, meaningful, and useful contribution to the context. There is no anxiety about these unconventional forms of becoming permanent features in the learner's repertoire. Those who support the learner's language development expect these immature forms to drop out and to be replaced by conventional forms, and they do. Employment. This condition refers to the opportunities for use and practice that are provided by children's caregivers. Young learner talkers need both time and opportunity to employ their immature, immature developing language skills. They seem to need two kinds of opportunity, namely those that require social interaction with other language users and those that are done alone. Parents and other caregivers continually provide opportunities for the first kind by engaging young learners in all kinds of linguistic give and take, subtly setting up situations in which they are forced to use their undeveloped language for real and authentic purposes. Ruth Weir's classic study of pre-sleep, pre-sleep, yeah, pre-sleep monologues of very young children is an example of the second kind of opportunity. Her work suggests that Young learner talkers need time away from others to practice and employ or perhaps reflect upon what they're learning. And that's interesting. I think what she did is she um, listened to kids when, as they talked to themselves when they were, they were falling asleep. As a consequence of both kinds of employment, children seem to gain increasing control of a conventional form of language toward which they're working. It's as if in order to learn language, they must first use it. Response. This condition refers to the feedback or information that learner talkers receive from the world as a consequence of using their developing language and skills. 
Typically, these responses are given by the significant others in the learner's lives. When the learner talker says, as he points to the glass on the table, dat glass, the response from the parent, if it's true, it is a glass, typically goes something like this. Yes, that's a glass. Exchanges like these serve the purpose of sharing information about the language and the degree of control that the learner has over it at any given time. The parent is supplying the missing bits of the child's approximation. The child is supplying the parent with an example of what he or she is currently capable of doing. It's as if the parent intuitively understands the importance of the responsibility and says to herself or himself, I have no way of deciding which aspect of this learner's approximation is in need of adjustment just now. Therefore, I'll demonstrate the conventional version of what I think was intended and leave the responsibility for deciding what is salient in the demonstration to the learner. Applying the conditions of learning to literacy teaching. The identification of these conditions created a host of questions, including could these conditions be applied to literacy learning? What happens when they are translated into classroom practice? Could they form the basis of an educationally relevant theory of literacy education? To address these and related questions, I sought the help of teachers. Ten years ago, we employed a teacher-as-co-researcher methodology to explore the ramifications of these conditions for literacy learning and classroom practice. In what follows, I will briefly describe some of what's emerged from this co-researching project. Could these conditions be applied to literacy learning? We spent some time jointly exploring this question. We decided that the conditions that supported and enabled oral language learning could be transferred to literacy learning. The flow chart in figure one summarizes the consensus we achieved. Our joint exploration suggested that engagement was the key. It didn't matter how much immersion in text and language we provided. It didn't matter how riveting, compelling, exciting, or motivating our demonstrations were. If students didn't engage with the language, no learning could occur. We were forced to look closely at the factors that affect the degree to which learners would engage or not engage with the demonstrations of literacy that were provided. As a consequence, we formulated the following principles of engagement. And here they are. <laughs> Bullet one, learners are more likely to engage deeply with demonstrations if they believe that they are capable of ultimately learning or doing whatever is being demonstrated. Bullet number two, learners are more likely to engage deeply with demonstrations if they believe that learning whatever is being demonstrated has some potential value, purpose, use for them. Learners are more likely to engage with demonstrations if they're free from anxiety. Learners are more likely to engage with demonstrations given by someone they like, respect, admire, trust, and would like to emulate. We discovered that when these principles are consciously applied, teachers began to employ a pro-learning, pro-reading, pro-writing discourse, which in turn sets in motion certain processes and personal relationships that are conducive to learning literacy. We also learned that if teachers 
consciously tried to maximize the degree to which they implemented expectations, responsibility, employment, approximations, and response. The probability of increasing the depth of learner engagement with the demonstrations they gave was dramatically increased. And this is something that I hear most often when I talk with teachers, that the thing that they're having the most trouble with is how do we get them to do the work? How do we get them to be engaged? So I think going back and thinking and spending some more time with those bullets right there about how we embed those in our course design could be really important resources for us to add to our online learning as well as our face-to-face learning. Cameron continues with another question. What happened when those conditions are translated into classroom practice? As we began to explore the implementation of these conditions in classrooms, it became obvious that certain processes were necessary accompaniments to the literacy learning context that were created. So far, we have identified transformation, discussion, reflection, application, and evaluation. It's hard to separate these processes from each other and from the conditions of learning. They co-occur and mutually shape each other. The seams between them are difficult to find. Despite this, I will attempt to describe what we've learned so far. In the next podcast, I'll read those conditions that co-occur and mutually shape each other. In the meantime, keep thinking.